I'm definitely on the side of conceptual pluralism compared to most, you know, analytic philosophers. And you're probably like on the super far side of that. Yo, what is going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. I'm a sniffly Austin Hayden-Smith because apparently it's allergy season, at least in my room at the moment, and um, I don't know if it is elsewhere in Australia, but uh, I feel a little sniffly. Troy, how you doing today? Yeah, you do got the sniffles. I don't think I've ever. I don't know if I've ever heard you with the sniffles. It happens every now and then. My uh, my Superman uh, immune system sometimes gets bombarded by dust and little pollen cells, and they come at me and they attack me. Cells? Are they cells? I don't know. I don't know. It's it's weakness of will, man. Aristotle talked about this. You gotta, you gotta <laughs> just do better. Yeah, exactly. All right, I'll do better from now on. I promise I won't let it ruin the uh, content of the show. <laughs> So, all right, so this week we're going to be doing a sort of, um, what, in memoriam, but also um, uh, a little bit of an exposition, and then obviously as we do a little bullshitting on a famous essay by the recently deceased Charles Mills. Troy, can you tell us a little bit about Mills in this essay? Yeah, so um, Charles Mills was an analytic political and social philosopher. Probably someone who's, I would, I would guess that his stature has increased a lot over the past, you know, 15 or so years, even after, long after a lot of his more uh, pioneering work was done. Um, mostly probably just because the, the sort of ethos that he represented being, um, you know, one of the admittedly rare African-American philosophers in analytic philosophy, especially analytic political philosophy. Um, he was pretty critical of a lot of the uh, field. And so uh, I wouldn't say that fell on deaf ears in the, in the late 20th century. And I certainly don't know enough about the sociological aspects of the discipline to really speak to that. But he's, he's a major figure now and has written works that are considered classics in the field that you have to, you have to uh, deal with if you're working in the, in the domain of, um, of justice and um, mm. political philosophy in general. Like The Racial Contract is his most famous book. Um, this essay we're going to talk about today, Ideal Theory is Ideology, uh, is also one of his more famous essays. Uh, I've been meaning to read it for a long time. So I thought, hey, let's let's talk about it um, on the podcast since he just passed away. And it's probably, you know, both uh, something pertinent to do given the, um, what, the zeitgeist, right? But then also like, oh, wait, we, we do this, right? We have like a way of honoring um, past philosophers when they pass away by dealing with their work that's what they'd want right that's what they cared about so it's a way of honoring somebody as well yeah absolutely um and i'm looking forward to it i mean i we had actually been talking about uh reading um the social contract for gosh maybe about a year now right like or or at least six to eight months you've been kind of like hey we should we should do this at some point we should do this at some point so um his work is something that i had only recently been introduced to, I'd say, within the last year, and um, it's definitely something that I've wanted to delve into a bit more 
Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think especially probably... after you read um, Cedric Robinson's Black Marxism with that reading group yeah. you did last year, <clears throat> I, I would be very curious to see what the the interaction would be between that text and uh, Mill's racial contract. Um, not just because mm. they're they're two black philosophers, but because that it seems to me that they're probably doing a similar, a formally similar kind of thing, but in very different arenas, right? Mills mostly in sort of the um, liberal political domain, um, yeah. Robinson more in the Marxist domain. So it'd be it'd be fun to see how um, how similar formally it actually is, and if there are any um, you know conclusions that in any way uh, cross pollinate or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, well, maybe a little bit we could bring up Robinson too. One of the things that really characterizes Robinson's work is that there's like a surrealism, almost we might even call it a sort of like um, nod to the preservation of a mysticism that he sees as being part and parcel of, of African culture that has spread throughout the diaspora and um, that is part of black revolutionary um, movements and so there's something interesting in that there's like an artistic poetic um, transcendence that Robinson appeals to um, that characterizes blackness as being something unique um, almost as a sort of like um, Archimedean point almost you know that that uh, has an endless well of resources from which um, uh, these revolutionary movements have been able to draw that have motivated them. So <clears throat> that's something that's very unique, which I don't think you get, at least in this essay that I read at all, but I don't think you get in this style of, of analytic political philosophy. Um, and so it's something that we could talk about because maybe it is there in Mill's other works and um, it's something we could kind of see if, if there's something interesting about that that characterizes a lot of um, like black liberation type of thinking. So, yeah, so I'm excited to kind of peel the layers back a little bit on this essay and maybe delve into um, some of Mill's broader concerns. And, um, yeah, so we'll get into that. But, of course, before we do, we got to start off the episode the way we start off every motherfucking episode. It's with the shitty minute. This is where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that's pissing us off. Troy's turn this week. So, Troy, what's got you down, brother? So I'm assuming you've heard the phrase uh, doing my own research lately. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So um, I'll, I'll just intro this. I'm sure everyone else has heard this phrase, too, in the parlance, uh, especially with regard to um, whether or not someone wants to get a vaccine. Uh, I've obviously heard it huh. quite a bit over the past you know, year and a half. But it's, it's funny that it's, it's sort of come into the it's like crossed over into my other interests, given that uh, NBA training camps have just started uh, the last couple of days. And so uh, I think something like 90% of NBA players are vaccinated reportedly. So very high, higher than the general population in America by quite a bit. What's the number? 91? 90%. 90%. Yeah, and that's okay. before training camps have even started. So um, that'll probably even creep higher as games get closer, uh, especially given that I think it's only a few teams, the ones in New York and, and um, Northern California, but the for those, there's like citywide uh, mandates that uh, if, uh, you know, big employers don't have all their employees vaccinated, then they can't come to work. So, and the NBA just reported yeah. that they're going to, um, if someone doesn't, if someone in the, on those teams doesn't get vaccinated, then they don't, don't get to come to the arena and they don't get paid. So I'm guessing that- wow. Yeah, like Kyrie- 
Kyrie is unvaccinated. I know that was a big deal with the Brooklyn Nets, right? Yeah, that'll certainly be a big deal. We'll see what happens there. Uh, and Andrew Weekends with the Warriors yeah. as well. So uh, that context in there, um, there was a couple of funny uh, jokes that have happened over the past couple of days. Since, you know, part of the issue is 90% of NBA players were vaccinated reportedly, and that's probably going to creep up, right? And yet all the news stories are about Kyrie Irving and Andrew Wiggins, uh, Bradley Beal, other guys who are like, you know, either skeptical or unwilling to talk about uh, vaccination or whatever. Uh, yeah, and they're super, Andrew Wiggins is not a superstar, right? But but Beal and Irving are. And um, so they get sort of disproportionate attention, even though they represent a, a pretty small minority um, of NBA players, right? Mm. And um, yeah. But since there's been some pushback saying like, hey, like the guys who got vaccinated and who have, you know, like think that it's a good thing that they did, that they weren't forced to or feel like they were coerced to, they should speak up more. Like they should have, you know, some news stories about them rather than only covering the guys who are skeptical. It kind of misrepresents the the status of NBA players, only focusing on the guys who are skeptical, mm-hmm. right? So um, one thing was, you, you know, the Lopez brothers, Robin yeah. and Brooke Lopez? Yeah, so uh, yeah. they're kind of famous, um, famously brothers in the NBA. Seven foot tall guys. They went to Stanford. <laughs> they're they're both huge nerds, even though they're literally also huge, um, like big Marvel fans, video game guys. They're also extremely funny, and they constantly make jabs at each other through the media. Um, and so, <laughs> Brooke Lopez, fam- you know, he won the championship last year with the Milwaukee Bucks. And someone asked Robin Lopez uh, during the beginning of training camp uh, a couple days ago whether or not or what he thought about his brother having won a championship. And he said he's actually didn't he didn't watch the finals, he said. Uh, So he's not really sure that it (laughs) happened. So he's going to have to go and do his own research to find out whether or not that actually occurred. (laughs) Uh, So that was one thing. The other funny one was uh, Boyan Bogdanovich. Are they twins? Are they twins or are they just brothers? Yeah, fraternal twins, I believe. Um, Okay, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, they were born minutes apart. So I, they, there's, there's a joke about one of them being a couple minutes older than the other, but I can't remember which one it is. Um, so the other one, the other funny thing was Boyan Bogdanovich, who's a Serbian uh, player. He plays with the Atlanta Hawks. Um, not a superstar, but like you know, a really good player, and certainly internationally, he's kind of a, a superstar. Um, and he, uh, I think he posted on his IG because a couple of the Hawks players had been guys who were like questioning vaccination or something like that. And he posted on his IG something about. Uh, uh, la- laboratories versus lavatories. That's where you do your research. So it's like a per- uh, like yes. vaccination research is done in the laboratory. Anti-vaccination research is done in the lavatory, you know, on the toilet. Yes. Um, so it's, it's funny to see some mm-hmm. NBA players poking fun at uh, the guys who think that they're super uh, independent and cool for um, being skeptical of vaccines. Having read but, some articles. But that, that yeah. just leads to this idea of like, I have trouble under. This is something you hear a lot, not just from NBA players, right? What in the world do people mean when they say they need to do their own research before they can conclude mm. whether or not they get their vaccine? Like, there's a lot of there's a lot of rhetoric around anti-vax stuff that doesn't make any sense. Well, in fact, mostly all of it doesn't make sense, right? Um, but this one especially, like, I, I have trouble understanding what people even mean when they say they need to do their own research. Like, are people literally just Googling vaccines dangerous or something like that? And then uh, reading some articles that yeah. come up from some random blogs or, you know, they see someone on TikTok talking about how their brother's balls ballooned up when they took the vaccine or whatever. And then they're like, 
I just did my research. What do you have any idea what people are even referencing when they say that line? I th- I think it's a combination of all of those things, but um, yeah, I think people have trusted news sources and accounts that they follow on Twitter and. <laughs> you know, people that post links and things like that. And so I think what they mean, though, isn't just like it was one day. I think that they they literally, for months and months and months and months, are um, listening to the same voices, right? And that's really the problem is, is that there's an issue of, like, selection, is are they doing research in the way that people in the academy understand what research is or that a professional researcher understands what research is? Because you don't have to be in the academy to do you know, high quality research, right? Um, so are they doing that? And then do they understand when when researchers, professional researchers report on their research, do they really understand the process, the years? I mean, it isn't just, you can't all of a sudden just dip your toes into epidemiology literature and say that you've done research. I mean, we're talking about people who have bachelor's degrees in whatever the fuck it is that they have, you know, um, and then they go on and then they do graduate school and then they do uh, PhDs and then they do postdocs. And we're talking about 10, 15, 20 years of reading all the literature, all the surrounding arguments, understanding all kinds of other functionalities that pertain to their specific area. And I think that people think that if they just, you know, read maybe a book, that, like a popular book that was published or they read 50 to 70 articles, they think that that is um, – like up to the level that they can call it having done their research over, you know, a six month, eight month, 10 month period or something like that. And I think that there is, there's a little bit of one, I get, I get like the impulse for it. Cause it's like a, it's like a, an, an empowering move, right? Like rather than just simply trusting a narrative, they feel like, oh no, I have some autonomy here, right? Cause the internet gives me access to sources. I can go and read things. I see the information myself. I see it. I see it. It's right there in front of me. It's, it's plain daylight. Duh. But what they don't understand is that there's all kinds of interpretive issues. Um, there's all kinds of semiotic issues. There's all kinds of like issues with just being like, no, no, it's right there. I see the thing in front of me, right? But they feel like there's a sense of empowerment that comes, I think, a lot of times when they're able to, quote, do their own research. And so I think that's really where it comes from. It's it's about power. It's about autonomy. It's about, like, asserting their individual place in a world that is increasingly becoming disempowering and people feel like um, they're not able to contribute or have their say or to um, articulate themselves. And, yeah, I think that's kind of what's going on here. Yeah, so this is where I'm torn, right, because... You know, there, I can see two poles, and there's somewhere in between where any individual person's probably going to lie uh, when, when they're talking about doing their own research uh, in this context. One is like the kind of, it's not really Kantian, but like the sort of self-determination notion, Kantian self-determination notion of like something's only rational if, if it arises purely from self-determination, right? Or something like that. So right. that that's like the autonomy side, the... Uh, if anyone tells me what to do, it's not really a rational autonomous action. So it's I have to sort of uh, abstract myself from all those things and make my own decision based upon my own internal reasons, and that's it, right? So like, there's that notion. It's like a sort of um, it's not again, it's not like it's not really a Kantian notion, but it's like a bizarro Kantian notion or something like that. And then there's like an expressivist notion, which is something like like I don't feel good about this decision. I don't feel good about 
the way I'm being told to get the vaccine from particular sources. And until I feel good, mm. I'm not going to do it. So doing my own research really just means I'm waiting. As of now, I don't feel good about it, so I'm not going to do it. So when the if yeah. and when the context changes, I might change my mind, right? But right now, I don't. And I feel like I hear people talk about both of these things, right? And maybe sometimes it's it's maybe there's some way in which they can be mutually reinforcing. Um, they do seem pretty different, though. So like, I just don't know which of those two poles it tends to lean towards for most people, because they would have. Because if mm. one of them is more dominant than the other, one of these interpretations, then different solutions would be uh, necessary, right? Because like a lot of people are, are mm. pushing on that, hey, don't infantilize anti-vaxxers. Like, most of them right. aren't grifters. Most of them are just nervous. Most of them are scared because they're being propagandized, blah, blah, blah. Uh, be kind to right, them. Right. Uh, all things I think you should do anyway, right? Uh, for like regular people who have... Uh, just as humans, yeah. Yeah, who are vaccine hesitant because, you know, for no fault of their own, but just because they don't know what to do, uh, given the circumstances uh, in our society. Like, I think you should do all those things yeah. anyway, right? But that should be the main thing if it's like a expressivist idea. Like, if it's just, I don't feel good about this, right? Um, mm. And that also means that, like, social media dunking and, and you know, stuff like that, and the way people are portrayed in the media has a big effect, because it makes people feel bad and feel ashamed. They don't like that. And so they reject things when they feel ashamed or feel like they're being shamed. Right. Um, but if it's more right, like right, a, exactly. if it's more like the autonomy thing, then um, it seems like it seems like we really need to like crack down on um, the, the, the places that are sort of propagandizing people like <laughs> um, misinformation needs to be cracked down on to some for you know, whatever way you think is most appropriate. That's differences of opinion there. Right. But it seems like. If yeah. people just need to feel like they make their own decisions for their own reasons, um, then they're just when they go to TikTok or Facebook or watch Fox News or OANN or whatever, then they're getting bad <laughs> information and that's the problem. And so I guess a lot of things would cover right. both of those, but it does seem like these different tracks are sort of necessary. And again, I, I don't think there's any reason to think that they're mutually exclusive, certainly, but it seems like different a different focus would be appropriate depending upon which of those interpretations you give to this. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think too, like, is there a situation when I would do this outside of, of the vaccine uh, scenario where it's like a, like a supplement, right? Like like natural ways to build muscle or something like that. And I might be like, I'm, I'm going to do a little research on this. I mean, I'm not doing research with a capital R. I'm just kind of like searching around, reading a uh, hundred different like fitness blogs, dietitian studies, you know, maybe go to WebMD and they've got links to studies that, oh, this supplement or this fucking herb, um, you know, increases this and helps with this and has this, you know, so, but, so I, I, I get, I get it because that's like small, right? But because we live in a world, I mean, that, um, not, 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 it's not inconsequential, but it doesn't seem as serious of an issue. But because we live in a world where that's what we're constantly doing, Right, we're constantly doing our own thing. Like, what kind of meals are we going to make for our kids? Well, this is how we do our research to be like, oh, this is the best balanced meal, or um, what kind of workout program, or what kind of TV shows should we watch, or whatever. Because we're constantly autonomizing, if you will, our our thought process and our action processes. I think that the vaccine thing is just a sort of more potent 
um, scenario, but it kind of comes from the same tendency, which is this larger, broader cultural tendency, you know? Yeah, and I mean, I think that, and there's, there's an argument here to be made about how Google Foo is going to destroy civilization, right? Um, this idea that you can just Google a thing and you get the automatic right answer to it, um, as if that yeah. that makes your decision autonomous. When you know, if you investigate it, it's clearly like not the case. That's in any way autonomous. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that you know, uh, the kind of the kind of reliance, like epistemic reliance that most people find appropriate, even though it's not classically autonomous in this domain, would be going to see your primary care physician. Someone you trust, mm. you've had years of experience with, has treated your family, right? Your parents or your kids, um, who you trust not only their expertise, but also the fact that they wouldn't lie to you, right? And wouldn't do something to, to sort of destroy the relationship they've built with you over many, many years and the reputation that they have right. that gets them more patience, you know, through your recommendations and stuff like that. That doesn't happen anymore. I haven't had a primary care physician since I was a minor. Um, most people mm. in America don't yeah, have yeah, primary yeah. care physicians anymore. And so that that link of social trust that used to exist is probably like, if not the number one factor, one of the major factors that would have, I think, stemmed the tide of all this stuff. Because if, if you want like a doctor to come on NPR and talk about vaccine research or whatever and try to quell some people's fears, maybe some people will believe that. But the, you know... The hardcore hesitant people are just going to think that person's bought in, right? That's not something they can trust. Like credentials don't elicit trust, right? Relationships do, and relationships with credentials even better, right? Um, and so, because we lack that that sort of fundamental um, like creator of social trust uh, in, in the primary care physician, I, I just think that that's probably would have stemmed the tide so much more than any other thing that we're doing to try and like up the reputation of the CDC and stuff. Dude, I, I even have people in my life who are, you know, super vaccine skeptics. Like the thing going around now, and I don't know how how like predominant it is, but the idea is that like the hospitals are in on it. And so are the doctors and nurses. Like because they want to get more of that that lush, sweet COVID funding, they're deliberately killing people in the hospitals to up the death numbers for COVID. Yeah, right. Like people are like storming ICUs to show that this is the case, right? Like th this is how bad it's gotten. Mm. Like, I mean, people shouldn't trust for profit hospitals necessarily, right? But doctors and nurses, I, I, I everything I ever heard growing up was that was like the top of the pedestal as far as the, the professions that people trust the most, right? And if people are like giving up on that in mass, that's, that's fucking scary, dude. <laughs> yeah. I know. Well, you know what? Before I can comment on this whole thing, I got I probably got to do my own research on it. So, uh. <laughs> That's a good one. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's get into the main segment, brother. All right, dude. Okay, so we're going to be talking about Charles Mills, a little bit of an in memoriam to celebrate his life and his contributions to the world of political thought, political philosophy. Um, and, uh, the way we're going to do that is by, is this his most celebrated essay that we're looking at? I don't, I don't, I'm certainly up there. Um, okay. Probably just go his on His most like, well-known book. Yeah. His most well-known book is the social contract. Racial contract. Um, yeah. and then, 
what, what are, what's up? Oh, the, the racial contract. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, and then uh, ideal theory as ideology is kind of it is that's like another book that he wrote, right? I think it's just his essay. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Mills? Um, obviously, I don't know a ton about him. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about Mills and then um, about this essay and maybe his broader project, if if you can? Yeah, so uh, Mills uh, was, we can say was now, he just passed away, um, an African-American um, political philosopher. Uh, he, I believe, taught at uh, CUNY uh, up in New York. Uh, I don't know where else he may have taught. But he was prominent throughout the latter half of the 20th century. Uh, he wrote The Racial Contract in, uh, in 1997, actually later than I thought. I thought it was like in, okay. the, in the early 90s. So 1997, um, and, and probably since then has gained a level of notoriety that I think would put him in like the, you know, the first tier of um, most influential political philosophers in the analytic tradition. Right, mm. which is you know not huge, and certainly uh, John Rawls would be the number one in that sphere, um, in this in the latter half of the twentieth century, and and Mills is largely working, and this is going to be kind of hard to get from this essay. So if you're reading this essay, you might see this as being like Mills just rejecting the entire sort of tradition following from Rawls in uh, right. American political philosophy, and he's certainly extremely critical, right, of that tradition, but he's also working within it. Uh, and I think um, I mentioned to to you, Austin, before we started that Liam Bright, who, if anybody is a, a like Twitter philosophy, philosophy person, they know him as um, Last Positivist, uh, and he's a wonderful follow, and probably like I would say one of the most um, one of the most influential and probably like circumspect Twitter philosophy people out there, right? I mean, would you agree mm. with that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, yeah, as far as like understanding the, 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 the sociological aspects of the discipline and where things are at um, with philosophy uh, in the public sphere, he's, he's got to be like, if not number one, one of the top uh, in that domain. And he wrote a blog post. He had a personal relationship with Mills, being another African-American or another um, black philosopher. Uh, Liam Bright's English, right? I believe. I don't want to misquote that. Yes, correct. Um. And so he wrote a really a nice little blog post talking about some of the wonderful interactions he had with Mills. And really, I think, foregrounding the idea that as much as Mills is critical of the um, sort of liberal democratic uh, political philosophical tradition, he's also trying to, you know, sort of, what would you say, like, um, like resurrect or not resurrect, but like, sort of, you know, resolve a lot of contradictions within it and sort of save the things in that tradition that are worth saving. Um, but also mm. introducing this, from his perspective, he would call it non-ideal theory, theoretical perspective um, to sort of gain the gain the like first seat, right? He wants um, a certain kind of political philosophy to be the main uh, the main thing people reference in the thing of political philosophy and not mm. sort of the what he would call ideal theory being the sort of um, first philosophy in terms of how political philosophy is run. That's all pretty abstract. Uh, so maybe if we get into some of the arguments in the essay here, some of this will make more sense. Okay, cool. So let's do that. Let's start to kind of break down what this essay actually argues. 
Um, how do we want to start? I guess these, he's setting up a simple um, opponent, which is what he calls ideal theory in ethics. And he's doing this based on some current trends in feminist philosophy that he thinks translate quite, re quite well into his expertise, which is um, like racial political philosophy, right? So um, what is he looking at? What's the landscape? And how does he identify the, the target, the enemy, ideal theory before he develops his non-ideal ethical theory? Yeah, so this is, I mean, I was telling you before we started that, um, I, having read this essay now, I feel a bit confused about what the actual thesis of it is. Um, okay, <laughs> I can just say here's what he in the in the first section says. Um, his thesis is he says I will argue that the so-called ideal theory, more dominant in mainstream ethics, is in crucial respects obfuscatory, um, and can indeed be thought of as in part ideological in the pejorative sense of a set of group ideas that reflect and contribute to perpetuating illicit group privilege. Mm. So he's doing a kind of, um, I don't want to say it's ad hominem attack because it's not. I mean, he's, he's, some ad hominem attacks are perfectly legitimate, right? Uh, if in fact that's like someone's uh, character or, or motives or whatever are actually pertinent to what they're doing. So it's in no way like fallacious yeah. for that reason. But he is sort of um, trying to argue that, that the sort of dominance of ideal theory in, political philosophy in you know late 20th century America is ideologically driven and not sort of justified from a theoretical perspective as it claims to be. And so mm. there's, you know, he, he mentions Rawls as being, I think, kind of his main target. And although I think actually he's, he probably thinks about Rawls followers as being the main target more than anything, even at the end, there's a point where he says that uh, the the promise that Rawls gave, Rawls gave gives about the importance of non-ideal theory never actually comes to fruition in his followers, so much so that uh, in several of the anthologies written about Rawls, they mention racism like twice <laughs> or something like mm, that, right? Mm. Uh, which is, I think, uh, exactly a correct uh, critique of the sort of milieu of political philosophy in America dominated by white dudes. Um, but right. that said, there's just kind of like there's kind of two ways you can think about this. Um, so let me just quote the quote that he gives from Rawls about um, how ideal theory and non-ideal theory are related. So in the theory okay. of justice, Rawls talks about what he calls strict compliance theory and partial compliance theory. And those are basically his terms for what um, Mills is calling ideal and non-ideal theory. So basically what Rawls is doing in theory of justice is he's saying, look, you can, you can assume for the sake of argument um, that everybody uh, in a political system will be compliant and then figure out from there what would be needed to sustain that, right? So like the second half of a theory of justice is, is sort of built upon notions like stability and strains of commitment and stuff like that, which is really about how do you stabilize and keep running a just order? in the political system, mm. right? And so he says, mm -hmm. now, of course, obviously in real life, that doesn't even come close to happening. You actually have what he calls partial compliance theory, which is people sometimes um, comply with uh, a, a, like a dominant notion of justice and sometimes they don't. And they have good and bad reasons for doing that, depending, right? Um, mm. 
And then what he says, and this is the quote that, that Mills has here, is that this is from Rawls. The problems of partial compliance theory are the pressing and urgent matters. These are the things that we are faced with in everyday life. The reason for beginning with ideal theory is that it provides, I believe, the only basis for systematic grasp of these more pressing problems. And so when you read that, you might be like, okay, it sounds like non-ideal theory actually is more important in a certain sense, Mm. in the sense of being more important to everyday life and more important to justice in how actually existing political systems work. And that Rawls is basically saying, but in this book, we're going to do a whole lot of strict compliance theory or ideal theory so that we can frame the non-ideal aspects in a helpful way. So we can understand those aspects in their most uh, in-depth or systematic is the word he uses way. We can really understand the non-ideal stuff better once we have ideal theory under our grasp. And so... I mean, I think that that's true, basically. And then there's a whole lot in this essay where Mills is kind of exoriating that idea. He even says right after that quote that I have from Rawls, how in God's name could anybody think this is the appropriate way to do ethics, (laughs) which is a pretty great Mm. line. Mills is a great writer. I mean, he has some of these like, he doesn't care about this sort of sober style that exists in analytical philosophy right he'll just like say yeah. things which i love i, I, yeah, I wish I, more people would like that <laughs> i really did enjoy this. he literally says so there's this list that he gives right um that we could maybe talk through because I, I found it to be kind of um i don't know very in, in illuminating and sort of the um consequences or the implications of uh negative negative consequences of ideal theory but yeah this paragraph is so he lists these characteristics of uh ideal theory and he he literally says how in god's name could anybody think that this is the appropriate way to do ethics and and i think and and it's italicized as well um and um there's something that i loved about his writing style that um that really indicated to me that his primary concern is really rooted in the desire to impact society, right? Like this, the stakes of this matter for mm. Mills. Whereas I think a lot of times when we're reading, you know, texts on ethics or like, especially if it's more like a, like a survey text, like that you might teach to a philosophy 101 class or an ethics and an, an introduction to ethics class, you don't oftentimes get like, passion with you know an elaboration of bioethics or something like that for example but with this essay in particular it's very clear that he is frustrated with certain uh consequences of ideal theory for like how should we live our lives like literally it seems that for mills you know that that if we're not asking those fundamental questions that classical ethics have always asked how do we live our lives what's what is the good life if we're not asking those questions then we're fucking we're wasting our time and not only that but if our ethical ideas if they don't intentionally bear on that question and then prescribe ways to reorder society reorder our ethical way of thinking then we're also wasting our time and so for me i think that that is so important to constantly keep in mind because as i'm reading this i'm reading him eminently concerned with one let's say analysis and then two with prescription prescription what do we do now how can we how can we then do better 
right? And I think that's constantly throughout this. So that's just something that I think was uh, kind of illuminating to to really kind of get into what Mills is doing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, the way I take it, and, and and maybe part of this is just the context of reading this essay by itself without, I mean, he has another essay called Black Radical Kantianism, where he tries to to save a lot of Kantian notions of autonomy from within a, a sort of black radical tradition. And so maybe there'd right. be a little bit more of the like, um, the the synthesizing and not just the canceling to use like Hegelian parlance, right? Uh, from that essay, as opposed to this one, because this one he pretty is pretty like exhortative um, of the whole tradition, um, which may be unfair to the way he would think about these things uh, sort of holistically. But that said, um, I would think that that critique, this notion that if our if our normative and ethical theoretical developments don't have an impact on literal like daily living and on actually existing political systems, then they're worthless. Well, of course I agree with that. Who could who could possibly disagree with that, right? Like no no one here wants to talk about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin just for its own sake because it glorifies God and has no effect on anything on the real world like that. We're all beyond that, right. I would hope, right? Uh, and maybe sometimes, I think a lot of analytic philosophy, uh, even in the sort of you know, normative spheres and value theoretical spheres, can be like that, right? Um, I feel like that's more of a, a comment on, like a sociological comment on philosophy than it is an actual theoretical one. As, I mean, if, if you take Rawls at his word, he thinks the importance of ideal theory is in order to understand the non-ideal aspects which are more pressing better. Right now, at the end of this essay, Mills he reiterates. Wait, what do you mean? Can you can you clarify that? So why? What is what does that mean exactly? I mean, it's a long story in Rawls, but I mean, this this goes back to anybody who's been accused of of being of abstraction in, in political philosophy, right? From Kant to Hegel to um, Plato, you know, whomever. Um, in some sense, all those thinkers are gonna are gonna do ideal theory in such a way. Hobbes, Locke, as well, right? Um, that if we can understand the uh, ab- abstract notions in a certain way, then we can compare those, relate those to the actual, you know, non-ideal aspects, and in that way understand how sort of fall short, how much they fall short of the ideal aspects. If if it's kind of kind of like what we were talking about with Prozorov, right? Where you've got this barometer, where it's like, okay, so freedom, equality, and community. That's the barometer. And then we can use that in any situation and we can be like, how much freedom, community, and equality is here? Not a lot? Well, then let's readjust it, right? So if you can find axioms, if you can find universal principles, if you can find universal ideals, you can use that as a check to make sure that you're constantly um, reconfiguring, if you will, your your system, your political milieu, so that it better matches with the pre-established ideas that are desirable, that are presumed to be desirable. Yeah, yeah, they're to some extent regulative ideals, right? And there's you know, different theorists yeah. have a stronger and weaker versions of what it means to be a regulative ideal, right? But in some sense, you judge the currently actually existing uh, features of your political world by an ideal and thereby understand in how they fall short, in what way they fall short, how much they fall short, and better understand what you need to do to improve them so that they're more likely ideal. That's the basic idea, right? Yeah, so there's a dialectical relationship. It's not that you just say once and for all, we believe X, and therefore that is a blanket 
that's going to live um, over every ethical situation, social situation from here through eternity, right? Like that would be a very sort of crude, um, maybe conservative Christian idea, right? For example, um, and and that that would be a type of ideal theory that we might say is dogmatic and oppressive. But what you're talking about is a sort of idea of ideal theory that's like, hey, look, you're always starting in media res. We're always going to use some level of abstraction. We use those principles that we've developed through our process of abstraction. But at the same time, we also allow for um, the material realities to reshape our ideas as we're confronting them. Right. Something along those lines. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's several ways this can go. Right. And even in the essay itself, Mills disambiguates between several notions of ideal theory uh, in a way that's kind of confusing. And I'm not sure I really understand um, how that how the scheme that he develops there, like like how it comes to fruition in his actual conclusion, which seems much mm. less complicated <laughs> um, than the scheme that he develops. But suffice it to say, you know, one critique you can have of ideal theory is at the theoretical level where you can say to some degree when you do the idealizing especially when you do it of persons right you don't just abstract you abstract away from ethically and normatively important things about them like their race their gender their sex among many other things right mm-hmm. um and that's i think that's partially correct like i think if you interpret like Rawls, for instance, as like the original position is how you ought to think about ethics. That's bad. <laughs> you shouldn't think about ethics mm. that way. And Rawls doesn't think that's the case either. Um, uh, but it's neither here nor there. That's I think that's kind of a bad way of do, using idealization and ethics. And I agree with that. That's one sort of theoretical critique you might have. I think Mills does have that critique. He cites Honora O'Neill um, as uh, someone who also shares something like this kind of critique of idealizing persons. And, you know, Honor O'Neill is actually, like, I think one of the best living philosophers, like, in the world. And she's a Kantian. <laughs> so um, she's mm. certainly not, like, some, like, radical, um, um, some radical feminist in the sense of, like, someone who, like, hates all the white dude philosophers or whatever. There, there aren't, you know, that's a stereotype of radical feminism anyway, right? Um, mm. But she's, like, she's very much in the, you know, I'm critiquing, she critiques Rawls uh, for notions of idealization as well, but, you know, from very much within doing the same kind of project. Um, so that's like a, a, the- yeah. like a theoretical so, thing you could have, right? But really quick, there's also like a sociological critique you could have, right? Which is um, when when the people who are doing the ideal theory don't know non-ideal theory very well at all, they end up not really understanding how to apply their ideal theory, even if they do it well, right? So what um, do you mean? So like... If, and I think this is this is very much accurate. If 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 you're if you're doing ideal theory, and you're sort of idealizing what the the just society would look like and how to maintain it and what kind of institutions would be necessary to maintain it over time, but then you're only ever talking to other white dudes. Like you're a white dude like us, and you're only ever talking to other white dudes. Mm. Like one thing you really have to understand to think about how actually existing institutions can be stable over time. Right and and earn people's trust and stuff like that and, and how a sense of justice can permeate through a society in a way that produces stability, like you have to understand that not everybody's white <laughs> and that's going to matter yeah. and not everyone's a dude and that's going to matter, right? And that's totally true, I think. Um, and the fact that almost everybody who does political philosophy in America is a white dude over the last you know fifty years is like a huge problem. Um, 
yeah. and has contributed towards the fact that non-ideal theory ha- or the people who do ideal theory don't know the non-ideal theory stuff very well. They don't know the more sociological aspects. They don't know the stuff that the you know feminists and the black radicals and the um, trans philosophers and everything else have taken great pains and the care ethicists have taken great pains to correct them on is totally right, right? Um, but that seems to me like a, like a sociological critique. Like, like y'all don't know mm. how to apply the ideal theory stuff that you're coming up with very well, and so you get kind of myopic when it comes to figuring out its mm. importance, right? If, if for instance, if Rawls thinks that ideal theory is important so that you can understand the non-ideal theory stuff in the proper depth, then you also have to move on to the understanding the non-ideal stuff in the proper depth part of the steps, like the second step there, right? And that never yeah. actually happens with a lot of uh, major American political philosophers. And that's, I think, true. So I, I was thinking a lot about like Marcus Gabriel and the idea of like the creation of a world, like a static idea. And then I was also thinking about Sartre and the idea of, you know, his famous maxim, existence precedes essence. And so a lot of Sartre's critiques of what he calls like idealist philosophers um, is that they invert that, you know, where essence precedes existence. Particularly, he, you know, really lambasts Lukash on this front um, from his perspective. It's a debate for another time. If you are interested in those debates, you know, feel free to reach out. But um, the idea is essentially this, that for Sartre, and then I'll get back to Gabriel maybe in a second, for Sartre, um, if essence precedes existence, we could think of that as the ideal... Um, having dominance over the non-ideal, right? And there's a sense in which when you do that, you dogmatically close, you foreclose the possibility of existence, of the actual, from having any sort of impact. And instead, what you do, you've carved out and you've created, in Gabriel's terms, you've created a world. And that world is one that um, is, is rigid, is stuck, is fixed, is blind, right and it becomes the more you feed it the more you reinforce it the more you speak from it the more you apply it the more you use it then the more rigid it becomes the stronger it becomes and the more unable it is to be sensitive to the non-ideal or to existence or to that which is actual or to the variance of experience or to difference or whatever else is out there that is excessive of that crafted um, little porcelain, little porcelain um, world that's been created, right? And so that's what my mind was thinking about a lot was the kind of like the one, the act of enclosure um, that leads to foreclosure, right? This act of like delimiting and saying this is um, the field of ethics. These are the principles that define ethical theory, um, which relates to, I think, um, you know, a philosophical decision, which relates to you know, Agamben writes about, um, I know he's like persona non grata at the moment, but, um, <laughs> but Agamben writes about uh, um, like the philosophical decision. When, when, when a decision is made, there's an, a beginning, there's a judgment, right? There's a sort of arche, right? And in that judgment, there's power, right? That is used, that is wielded, that is exhorted, which means that it's, um, that it's an enclosure that is enforced, but from a position of already pre-constituted power, right? So the person making the decision or the group making the decision that delimits the ideal from everything else, that says this is the standard, 
uh, it comes from a position of already pre-established privilege or power. And I think that's the thing that, whether it's Mills in this essay or whether it's Gabriel and his efforts, I think, to um, think the non-existence of a world or any world um, or the world, let's say, um, I think, and then also with Sartre, with wanting to advocate for existence preceding essence, I think that what they're trying to do is they're trying to contest, if you will, that dogmatic position of power that makes the philosophical decision or that makes the ethical decision in the first instance from the position of power and instead not only contests the act of the decision, which something Mills does talk about here, why did you choose this versus that? You know, there's a sort of like um, bias in selection of, of how the ideal is constructed in the first place. But even beyond that, and this is what you were talking about, the sociological ideas, is who is it that's making this position, uh, this this decision in the first place? And what is their position in society writ large and how are they blind to the the variations and and the differences that that make up that society in a broader sense and that for me i think is is how i was thinking about this so the non-ideal theory would be not just oh, you only have actual experiences, because that would be the passive nihilism of Prozorov, where it's just, you know, you only have differences, and it's just like rel cultural relativism, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, um, and Mills even says that it's a possibility to develop a non-ideal theory that is also universalist in its possibilities. And I would want to say, well, maybe this is where we have to go Hegelian here, and there has to be some sort of sense in which there is a dialectical relationship between the tendency towards abstraction which, without being too metaphysically dogmatic, might be part and parcel of what it means to, to be linguistic conscious um, entities, right? Human beings. Um, maybe that is a tendency. Maybe that is part of the, the faculties of thought, if you will. Um, and then, of course, the idea of the encounter, the encounter with the outside, the encounter with the excess, the encounter with lack, you know, um, that's going to, like, challenge... Um, our faculties and their tendencies towards formulation under particular conditions. So it's something along those lines. Yeah, I mean, I'm 100% on board with the Hegelian dialectical understanding of the relation between ideal and non-ideal theory, which I think, I mean, Mills even says, look, if, if Rawls had followed through on the promise of using ideal theory to better situate, explain, and understand the non-ideal aspects, right, as a stepping stone to that, then that would have been great, but he didn't, and his followers didn't, right? Mm. Um, and that's again where I'm thinking the sociological critique is 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 sort of adamant there, or is foregrounded there. I well, mean, and and is Mills' critique they didn't do it because they are part of this like white political philosophical system, which is something that he talked about, you know, in that video you sent me that it's like, look the the. The, the world of academic philosophy is quite white. So is he also making a sort of like critique of academia here, not just dealing at the level of like maybe more abstract concerns of ethics, but he's also like, hey, guess what? Like philosophy is pretty fucking white. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's the sociological aspect that I'm talking about, right? And he yeah. doesn't even say that it's like a, a conscious thing. He explicitly says in his essay that it's largely a, they're, they're coming from places of comfort and privilege and so they can kind of do the ideal theory stuff without ever questioning their comfort and privilege. So naturally, they just kind of bend towards that and don't worry about the non-ideal stuff, which is much more prevalent for people who are women or black or 
uh, trans or whatever, right? Where that stuff is foreground. That's why they care about philosophy in the first place was to answer the questions about that stuff, right? What does it mean to be a black person in America in the 20th century, right? Which, you know, obviously a Rawlsian's probably a white Rawlsian's not going to, they might think about that, but that's not going to be like the, the main question of their, like main existential question of their life, right? Um, I think that's, that's all certainly true, right? And my, my thing is like, look, we have a choice here between three options, it seems to me. One is to do, is to explicitly do what Mills is critiquing, which is to have ideal theory as the dominant and in fact exclusive zone of political philosophy, which is basically like, we're just going to think about what ideal persons would do, you know, behind a veil of ignorance or whatever, and then figure that out. That answers our question. We're done. Right. Um, no one explicitly does that, but maybe they implicitly end up doing that because, you know, they never get around to doing the important stuff. You could also exclude ideal theory entirely and just do non-ideal theory. Mm. And that sounds to me like that sounds bad to me because then I don't know how you properly situate. Like you end up in my mind being entirely critical without ever producing any notion of how we can get better than we currently are. And a lot of, yeah. I think a lot of kind of continental political philosophy ends up like this, where it, the entire orientation is critical, and sometimes in very fruitful ways. And then when the notion of what we can possibly do to make it better comes up, that's dismissed as like a naive or utopian question, right? When yeah. that seems to me like the question of utmost importance, right? Um, mm. Equally as important as the sort of critical orientation, right? And maybe even more so in like an explanatory sense, because you can't really know how to critique a thing until you know what's better than it. You know, there's something there. And yeah. so obviously both those options seem bad to me, right? So the proper notion seems to be like exactly what Rawls says he wants to do. Perhaps he doesn't do it. Um, and that Mills says, I wish he had followed through on, which is do both. Mm. Do both in such a way that they, you know, mutually reinforce one another. Like come up with the ideal stuff with the non-ideal stuff always right there next to you, helping you to correct when you're idealizing in inappropriate ways, right? Have it as like the angel on your shoulder, making sure you're always checking up with it to be sure that you're not, you know, obfuscating something important when you're doing some form of ideal theory. Um, and then, you know, go into pure like non-ideal theory with the ideal theory stuff on your shoulder being like, well, if I'm going to critique or try to understand what oppression is like for a black person or a woman or a trans person or whatever in contemporary society, I have to have some notion of what it would be like if that wasn't there and then compare the two, contrast them and then try to figure out what would it mean to alleviate that oppression and move towards the better system where it didn't exist. Um, so it seems to me yeah, like the question need is, each is other. what, the question is, is what, what model do you use and how do you select which model to use when saying what would oppression not look like? Like it's easy for me, somebody from Orange County, to be like, ah, oh, this is what it looks like. We all live on golf courses and we, um, we all drink, <laughs> you know – coffee every day and we read books and uh and i go to punk rock shows on friday nights you know that's my that's my world of non-oppression right so um which is also a very limited schema right so then the question is is 
that can't be the thing that is like applied on top of to be to be the barometer that's like ah this is the the non-oppressed world let's all live in the non-oppressed world right and then of course you know you have a a political economic critique of the fact that oh yeah that 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 middle class yuppie lifestyle is um you know critiquable if you will from within um you know uh, looking at commodity fetishism looking at like libidinal investments into into the economic system, et cetera, et cetera. So um, there's also ways to critique that. So that's that's the other issue then is there needs to be like a real, maybe like lightness with which we hold on to our ideals, even when theorizing what does a, in this instance that you just gave, like a non-oppressed social situation look like. We need to hold on to the idea that that there are thousands of possibilities and that, or, or maybe endless possibilities um, that, that that can be those ideals that also come in to help us um, in offering that that possibility for what we can aim for in a non-oppressed situation, right? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying is basically uh, the ideal theory stuff has to be revisable in the face of non-ideal theory, right? Like it can't be dominant in the sense that it's it's uh, eternal and universal and unchangeable, and the ideal and the non-ideal stuff has to like be revisable in its face like they have to be mutually revisable in certain circumstances well and even the ideal stuff needs to be part of like a, a toolbox of other ideals right what do you mean well so like let's think of I, I like an ideal th- as like a set right um and it's let, let's use prozorov's this is his ideal theory even though he wouldn't call it that right because he talks about how it derives from the void blah, blah, blah. but let's just say for example okay the the, the the famous french revolution you know you've got equality fraternity and um freedom right and so that's your that's your little set that you walk into and then you say this is this is the kind of like ideal that we're going to use this is the barometer this is the thing that's going to kind of like represent what we do well maybe somebody else doesn't really think that those three are meaningful maybe what they want is like um there's like another possibility for ideal which is like the good right um and then so that's 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 their their set or their toolbox and then um another ideal is you know maybe levinasian you know like some ethical standard before the face of the other or something like that you know some sort of simon critchley you know that there's like an infinitely demanding responsibility for the other and that's that's their toolbox and so what we do is we come with like a panoply of even ideals um that we can offer while standing before non-ideal theory. So then it's even more complex at another level, right? So it's almost like there's if there's two categories, the non-ideal and the ideal, even within the ideal, it seems that there are many sets of possibilities that we can also bring to the situation that they also need to be perpetually um, retooled in relation to the non-ideal. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems like what, what you're saying is like a level of conceptual pluralism has to be yes used here, right? And yeah, that's a, that's a yes. difficult question. Like... I'm definitely on the side of conceptual pluralism compared to most probably, you know, analytic philosophers. Um, and, and you're probably like on the super far side of that. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't mean that critically. Yeah. I just mean like, no, no, yeah, yeah you're very it's much a, a thousand true. flowers bloom kind of thing, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So like we, we share that orientation, I would think, compared to the mainstream. Um but yeah, I mean, I haven't thought super deeply about how much, like, how deep the conceptual pluralism goes. It seems to me like there's going to be some set of concepts that are inappropriate, perhaps because they're self-contradictory or they're oppressive or whatever, right? I certainly think like 
certain sets of theological concepts with which I worked before <laughs> and have like been dominant in my mind before have been bad and should be rejected wholesale. Uh, I don't think everyone would agree there's at least some that are bad. Like pluralism doesn't entail uh, complete relativism, right? Pluralism means that there's more than one correct answer and infinitely many wrong answers, <laughs> right? As, yeah. in, so far as there is you know, infinitely many possible answers. Um, so yeah, I, I don't really know. I, I certainly agree that there's a, a certain level of conceptual pluralism is absolutely necessary. And if you're working with a, a set of ideal theoretical concepts and it's like delimited and never open to revision and never open to any other uh, set of concepts, then yeah, that's, that's certainly going to be a problem that's going to make your your understanding of everything myopic, I, I would assume. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of... That's kind of it. Is there anything else that you wanted to say about this, like kind of wrapping it up? Like maybe what are the political stakes, political consequences, maybe something about like the legacy of, of this argument that you think is useful moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't know what the legacy of the argument really is um, nowadays. Uh, I just mm-hmm. haven't had enough experience um, with you know, people some outside my immediate circles when it comes to analytic political philosophy. Um, so I can't I can't speak to that too much. Um, I do imagine my, my guess would be that the influence is more on the the sociological side. Like, yeah, non ideal theory is taken more seriously now as it should be, right? As it always was supposed to be. Um, and you don't you don't necessarily have to do ideal theory. You don't have to follow a certain program to be considered doing serious political philosophy, which I think is wonderful and absolutely should be the case and always should have been the case. And I will say that, you know, mm. a lot of the the sort of historical stuff that Mills references here, like I think one of the best ones is Frederick Douglass, right? Where he's talking about um, uh, what is the 4th of July? Uh, what's it, the title of it? What's yeah. the 4th of July to a black man? Something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he basically says like, uh, you know, it's not for me, it's for you. Um, you... Uh, celebrate and I mourn, right? Um, mm. And I wonder, like, you know, if you think of, like, the constitutional principles as being a kind of ideal theory, which I think is what he's getting at there, and Frederick Douglass's laments about that as being a kind of non-ideal theory, referencing the Black experience, right? Um, that seems to me to be exactly the kind of thing that we're talking about, where I don't know, could Frederick Douglass have really conceptualized the level and the depth of the injustice of a black person's experience if he didn't compare mm. it to the never really brought, never really actualized ideals of the constitutional principles, right? Mm. Could the Haitians who revolted have understood, obviously they would have understood their own oppression and stuff because they were you know, being, they were enslaved, right? Um, but did the, the theoretical concepts from like, you know, Kantian theory and Hegelian theory that Toussaint Leverture and others like actually understood, right? They referenced those things right. and were like, this ex- this helps explain why the level of the injustice we're facing because you guys preach this shit and you clearly don't right. fall through on it. Like we are human beings right. too. And then right. the women's suffrage movement did the same thing, right? So now, and then those are with like bad ideal theory concepts, I would think, right? I don't think the constitutional principles are like philosophically foundational or anything. Um, but it seems to me like even poor ideal theory to some in some degree like helps you understand the depth of the non-ideal stuff stuff like oppression yeah. um 
and suffering and, and, and justice and everything else. And that's like that means in some sense it's functioning well if Frederick Douglass can reference those things and be like, you all don't live up to this. And that seems super important to me. Uh, and that, that's a dialectical mm. struggle, as you as you mentioned, right? Where you sort of you bring out the level at which uh, an ideal has failed as a way of critiquing it, not mm. necessarily to just reject it, but to sort of in a Hegelian way, right? Synthesize it into something new, right? Cancel it, but also preserve something in it. And and my guess is that that really is what Mills' project is as well, right? He wouldn't be exoriating this tradition as much as he is if he didn't think there was something in it to salvage right otherwise mm. you would just you know burn it down and walk away and i don't think i don't think exactly that, i don't think mills is jokerified here basically is the idea yeah yeah i think that's a great way to kind of close it up and i think maybe a lot of times the best critiques the most powerful critiques the most potent critiques the most emotionally charged critiques are precisely because of that. It's part of the reason probably why I critique Christians so much <laughs> is because I'm just so disappointed and frustrated in the ways in which Christianity is delimited. Um, and uh, yeah, so maybe that's it, right? And so when you care about something and you do want it to transform into something better, you do. You do spend a lot of time, a lot of... Um, painstaking time and trying to, to precisely transform it for the better if it's even possible although maybe one day i might have to just fucking give up on this concern with christianity and jokerify it i'm close i feel like i'm close with yeah. cut, so, sometimes it get more jokerified than others and some, sometimes you need a jokerified holiday right you gotta just do it for like yeah exactly <laughs> it's some exactly it's periods you know for a couple months at a time sometimes i fucking i can do that and then it just comes back and i'm like okay fuck <laughs> Right. I, I do. I will say um, something you've said yeah. before that really resonated with me, and I think it perfectly encapsulates the way I think about it too. Is like, I think you've mentioned that when you're around Christians, you become an atheist, and when you're around atheists, yeah. you become a Christian. Yeah, um, yeah. Not just in the like, you know, uh, devil's advocate, you know, trying to be antithetical to everything sense, but in the like, clearly, these popular notions of like, kind of pop new atheism, STEM kind of bro thing. And then, um, you know, conservative evangelical Christian, that we, the kind of stuff we grew up with, both of those are very destructive <laughs> ideologically in very different ways, yeah. right? Um, but there's something in both of them. There's something to salvage, something small to yeah, salvage. Yeah, exactly. Both of them. And so you, you <laughs> got to just try to bring that out because that's the only yeah. morsel left that's worth preserving and worth talking about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, exactly. So maybe it's the same with ideal and non-ideal theorists. Maybe we you're gonna be you're gonna be like the the Paul. You become all things to all men, but you're gonna. But do it's, that it's reverse Paul, though, right? Because Paul's like to the Greek, I become a Greek, right? But it's no to the Greek, I become a Jew, and to the Jew, I become a Greek. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I fucking love that. Uh, perfect. All right, sick. We'll go ahead and uh, let's wrap up the main segment there. I'm going to put the link down to the essay uh, or the article down in the show notes. You know, it is – the first couple pages in particular are quite dry and, and it, you know, um, it can be a little bit technical at times. Um, so if you're not really interested in wading through, you know, you know what is it, 18, 19 pages of um, – an academic paper, I get it. But if you are interested in that sort of thing, the link will be down in the show notes so you can check that out. I do think that even if you're not really interested in this type of academic stuff, um, 
uh, like that you'd want to spend time reading through it. There's still actually a couple sections that I think are pretty worthwhile um, that you can check out. There's this list that he does, uh, that he gives of um, like characteristics of ideal theory and then that bit that we talked about. And then he talks, you know, about like the importance of ethics and how um, it can't just simply be something that we muse about. And um, so I think that, that things like that are, are worthwhile to um, put a little effort into. And I'll also put a link down to the... Um, the Liam Bright blog yeah. that kind of talks about Mill's uh, legacy and it's a more of a personal tribute. So I'll put a link down to to both of those down below so you can check those things out. I, I will just mention um, for as like a teaser for the the Liam Bright blog post. One of the things he points out is is how Mill's, as we were mentioning, his writing uh, like it's it skews away from the sort of o- overly serious and, and sober analytic ph- philosophical style. Um, and so one time uh, Mills is talking about. Uh, something to do with like sexual oppression or whatever um and the difference between like white male black female and black male white female a relationship and how they've been treated extremely differently in you know, american history mm. uh and he mentioned something about how uh porn sites even have different categories for like uh mm. black male on white female and and white and yeah, um, yeah. white male on black female and stuff and he's like uh, and if you ask me how i know this it's from a friend of a friend <laughs> <laughs> you put that in an actual essay which is fantastic i'm amazed that it went through review <laughs> <laughs> oh jesus that's so good great <laughs> All right, sick. We'll go ahead and wrap up the uh, segment there, and let's get into the last one. Yeah, dude? Yeah. So y'all know what we got to do before we end off this shit, and that is do the Sticky Leaves segment of the podcast. So for anyone who doesn't know, the Sticky Leaves segment is where one of us talks about whatever it is that's providing us meaning in a potentially, but hopefully not, meaningless world. So Austin, what's doing it for you this week? Yeah, so I started reading a book recently within the past couple of weeks. Um, it's called How Do We Know We're Doing It Right by Pandora Sykes. And I wanted to just recommend this because I find it really fascinating. The book is actually written by and to and for women. And um, it's the subtitle is Essays on Modern Life. And Pandora Sykes was a fashion blogger, and I still think she does um, some fashion writing. And she's uh, like a columnist, editorialist, writer. I think she's written a couple books, has podcasts. She's British, and she's millennial. She's like, you know, mid-30s. And um, this book looks at uh, issues of, like, the pressure to get the look, which is uh, her chapter on fashion, and um, how it is that the fashion industry, of which she's a part, and she talks a lot about her kind of like participation in this, how it pressures women in particular um, to all get the look. Um, there's a chapter that I found really good because of the way that she talks about the flattening and the fragmentation of uh, women identities to um, kind of reduce us, reduce us, reduce women, she says us, reduce women to uh, just their body parts, right? Like it's boobs, it's ass, it's eyes, it's nose, it's ears. Whereas dudes don't oftentimes get torn apart. We're not fragmented in the same way, you know? We don't really think about abs and chest and shoulders, like a little bit. And of course, people who are more into that kind of thing, and maybe it's becoming more a part of our um, social identities because of Instagram and because we're constantly 
putting our bodies on display and so it, it um, incorporates us into this like scrutiny uh, like the scrutiny of the mirror the scrutiny of, of judgment but not as much right women are much more and have historically always been kind of like fragmented into these parts and then not only at the level of physicality but also at the level of emotion you know um you know fragmented into different parts and then the flattening is the idea that it's like you become this identity you know you are the um you are the bitchy girl, you are the fun girl, you are the this, you are the that. And then what happens is, is you get target marketing um, from faster fashion websites that sell you as the this person or the that person or the this or whatever, right? And so then she talks a little bit about um, the kind of like deepening, if you will, we might call it of like deepening of a serial identity, um, a deepening of a sort of like abstract um person right and that the the negative consequences of this but she does this for a bunch of things she talks about the wellness industry and how it targets women and uh, the whole idea is she says look i don't know i don't have too many answers but what i'm going to do is i'm going to give part um, autobiographical accounts of my experience and then also she does you know a little bit of research that she draws on like she draws on the work of like william davies for example he gets cited who famously wrote a book called the happiness industry and um sykes quotes him at some point so she draws on a lot of different research from all kinds of different sources and but it's also a book that's popularly written right so and we don't really talk too much about books that are popularly written unless they're like novels or something like that so i kind of wanted to talk about this because i'm finding it really interesting you know it's it's like i'm spending time with um um, a, a woman mentor who is like, "Hey, dude, let me hold your hand through these um, through these cultural issues." And uh, but she's not doing it because she's not actually speaking to me, right? Which is kind <laughs> of interesting too. Um, which I, is almost kind of better, right? Like it's it's literally a book that it, I think is mostly written for women, and um, so there's it's almost like actually it's like I'm a fly on the wall is really what it is more than anything. She's not holding my hand through it. Um, it's like I'm a fly on the wall and I'm like, oh shit. So this is how, this is how it feels to be a woman going on a tube in a, a short skirt in the middle of London where she's like, I don't do that anymore. I don't do it anymore because of certain situations that have happened to her. And she's like, so if I'm going to wear a skirt, she's like, I drive or I walk or I do this or that. I don't even put myself in these situations anymore. She talks about implications um, from that and, and all kinds of other things, right? So it's a really interesting book. Uh, like I said, it's Pandora Sykes. It's called How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? And really that's what she asks. She's like, how do we know that these pressures that we've bought into, these commodified forms of social life, you know, these consumerist pressures, how do we know that this is really the thing that is that is the right way to live? It's a very ethical question is, are we living the good life? And um, she talks a lot about that. And um, there's a real sort of critical, uh, a critique of capitalism throughout this whole thing as well, a critique of consumer capitalism and commodification throughout this whole thing and how, um, you know, like the feminine and how women bodies and women's psyches have been commodified and commercialized um, via consumer capitalist pressures. So um, it's a pretty interesting book. And I just wanted to kind of recommend that uh, one for dudes out there, but also because I know we have, uh, have uh, female listeners and uh, we don't oftentimes target things, particularly for, for um, the women that listen to us. So, yeah, Pandora Sykes, how do we know we're doing it right? I'd say give it a, give it a read. I'm curious, how did you find out about it in the first place? And, like, what, what led you to, to think, hey, I could benefit from reading this even if it seems like it, the target audience is women? It was on my girl's bookshelf. And oh. I was like, oh, shit, look at that. And um, I read the back of it. And uh, it just like the the kind of little synopsis was like 
it's like this. It's like, with a light touch and plenty of humor, Pandora Sykes delves into the myths we've been sold and the stories we tell ourselves in a timely bid to encourage us to consider the lives we once led and how they might better serve us. It's time to stop looking for the answers and start delighting in the questions. Which is kind of like just a little thing like to sell the book. But I was like, oh, okay, so it's essays on modern life. How do we know we're doing it right? And, um... And then I found her on Twitter and I found a bunch of people that follow her that are like all the people I respect uh, in Brit in like 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 Navarra media people. Doug Henwood follows her. So I was like, oh, shit. I was like, OK, <laughs> these people all follow her. I was like, I was like, so there's a little bit of street cred there. So I was like, oh, this sounds really interesting. And so we started reading it together. And then I've kind of just gone ahead and because um, we've actually started up another book here. Um, and so then uh, I've kind of continued. Um, so that was really how it started. And I'm kind of like, oh, cool. I'm kind of into it. See, this is something I appreciate about you, dude. You would just, I mean, as much shit as you have to do, especially involving reading, <laughs> you would just see a book on a shelf and be like, I'll read that. <laughs> I would never do that. I mean, like I have, I have a, a, a list of the books that I need to read next that will never end, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Ever. Mm -hmm. So I'm never, like the idea of taking a book off a shelf and just starting to read it on like a breezy <laughs> Sunday afternoon fills me with dread and anxiety because I should be reading something else. And that's horrible. You know, I can think of one book in my adult life that I just read off the cuff because I, I was staying at someone's house for a couple of days and they had it on their bookshelf. And I, for some reason, didn't have a book with me. So I just started reading it. And that was um, the graphic novel Persepolis by Marjane Satrapi. Do you know of it? There was a uh, film made about it. I've seen it. the film. I've seen the film. Yeah. Yeah. So I read that and it was amazing. I read it over a couple of days and incredible. Loved it. I'm so glad that I had the one act of spontaneity in my life where I took this book and just started reading because I had heard about it and it sounded interesting and there it was, right? Um, but otherwise, I would never do that because I'd feel so guilty about not following through on my list and I don't get to have this cool, unique experience that you had. Yeah, I, I, part of it is that uh, I'm a scatterbrain and I look for distractions <laughs> and if I see a distraction, I'm like, ooh, distraction, shiny new toy. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I guess part of it is also just like, I'm pretty good at not getting bogged down and stressed out by like the lists of things that I need to read, you know? Yeah. So like, I'm pretty good at being like, it's okay if I, if I take, you know, 45 minutes a day on this other thing. And in my mind, it's also related to any of my research as well, right? Because it is, it's talking about like, you know, the commodification of culture and the commodification of, you know, feminine identity and stuff like that. So I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so helpful that you get to have all these different streams of thought that you can then helpfully, you know, uh, compare and use to as like an explanatory tool for other stuff. And it's not, yeah, exactly. That's not normal. Like the, the way that especially academic fields are so stratified, that's not normal for that stuff to happen and it needs to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is, this is, it, it's a type of book too. Like, it's weird. Like, I actually love this. I don't know what the genre is. It's like, like part autobiographical, part cultural critique and analysis, but it's written for a popular audience. Like to me, I'm like, oh, I'm going to write books like that. Yeah, like that sounds like something stuff. you like to do. <laughs> oh, no. The, I'm, as I'm reading this, I'm like, oh, fuck. I actually have an idea for once I finish this current research project that I'm doing, I have an idea for a popular book I want to write. Um, 
I don't even know if I should talk about it yet because then that means that I'm going to kind of like lock myself into it because then people are going to be like, dude, are you doing that thing? So and it might not happen. But I have an idea for a book that I want to write that is very similar to this. Like it's absolutely perfect for, you know, um, I, I don't even know what you genre you call it, but like I want more of it. I feel like it's it's absolutely fantastic. You know, it's basically like a refined blog, you know? Yeah, I was just thinking like blogs and podcasts have this down, this kind of multi-genre thing yeah and it's in book version and i'm like oh shit like that is really i feel like that's kind of my strength you know and i'm like oh shit and and it excites me you know so i'm kind of like oh i could do that i want to do that so but anyway i can tell me off air (laughs) what's up you can tell me off air yeah i will i will i will exactly um but yeah i uh uh, that's the thing pandora sykes um how do we know we're doing it right go check it out uh, I'm sure there's an audiobook version as well, since I think it's kind of like a, a quite popular book. So you probably could check that out as well. Sweet. All right, dude. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. Um, like I said, I'm going to have a couple links down in the show notes so you can check out Mill's work. Um, uh, check out Pandora Sykes' book. Um you can follow us, owls underscore at underscore dawn on Twitter. You can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, all the good stuff. We love you. I think that's pretty much it. Unless there's anything else that you want to say that I've forgotten. Just one thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das Adania Marikonski. Yeah.